kind of an objective statement can be made, but I, I find it incredibly impressive. And we're going to, as we did last time, we're going to read from the Scripture, starting in Daniel 11 and verse 20. We'll pick it up there. We'll read from the Scripture, and then we'll read from the wall off of our slide, and then I'll try to give you a few more details surrounding what we're reading. And just to remind you, this was written by Daniel in approximately 533 B.C., as you can see down here at the bottom. So the time frame in which we're reading here, we're about 350 years ahead of time. You understand, Daniel's writing these things 350 years, plus minus, before they happen. And he's getting the details incredibly accurate. So th this to me is just pound for pound one of the more impressive spots in the Bible for prophecy. So last time we ended off talking about this man, Antiochus III, and how he died and nobody found him. That's verse 19. Then verse 20 says, Then shall stand up in his estate a raiser of taxes in the glory of the kingdom. But within few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. All right, so remember that the king of the north, that'll be Antiochus, and he's going against the king of the south. That'll be Ptolemy, whatever Ptolemy it will be. We'll have various names for, for that. Uh, so Antiochus III, or sometimes they call him Antiochus the Great, he's dead and gone. But remember, a, a huge tax had been imposed upon the king of the north because he tried to take over the islands of the Mediterranean, and Rome didn't take well to that. And now Rome is exacting further taxes of the northern kingdom. We also call it the Seleucid kingdom. So let's turn our attention to the wall here. Seleucus Philopater. I have two options for these words. Now, please, you have fun with the pronunciation yourself. You could say Philopater, but that just sounds very country. It sounds like I'm in the South in America. That's Philopater. That's how it's, it sounds too much like, hey there, mater. It's, it's Philopater. So we're going to go with Philopater. That sounds much more studious. Philopater. So Lucas Philopater raised taxes in an attempt to pay the tribute imposed by Rome. Philopater's treasurer, Heliodorus, after returning from Jerusalem, assassinated Philopater via poison. Now, what I, we're reading from the scripture, 533 B.C. What you're reading on the board, this, these are history books that give us this information. So I don't want you to think that I'm just reading the Bible and then putting a few names and dates to it on the board here. Um, this is what the history books told us happened. So there was a, a massive penalty that the North had to pay for, they had to pay the expenses of war. But then after that, Rome gave additional taxes to the king of the North. In order to pay that, this philopater started raising taxes. That's exactly what verse 20 said would happen, that he would raise taxes in an attempt to pay this, uh, uh, to, to pay everything off. And as a result, the people started to lose faith in him. Heliodorus, his treasurer, then poisoned him. So at the end of verse 20, you can see, within few days he shall be destroyed, neither in anger nor in battle. So he wasn't in a fight with anybody. There wasn't a war going on. Heliodorus did this secretly, poisoned him, and then he's gone. Now that brings us to verse 21. And in his estate shall stand up a vile person. Right? So the king of the north has now been assassinated, and a vile man stands up in his place, to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom 
by flatteries. So Philopater is now dead. You would think the next person to take his place on the throne would be his natural successor, somebody within his bloodline. But that's not what happened. Um, let's read the board again. While Heliodorus temporarily filled the position he made vacant, he killed Philopater. So instead of saying, okay, the king is dead, now let's let his son or his relative take the throne, Heliodorus stayed on the throne as long as he could. Rome held the rightful heir, Demetrius, prisoner. This gave Philopater's younger brother, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, also known as Epiphanes, a chance to politic his way to the throne of the north. So let's maybe recall a fact from last time. When Antiochus III got conquered by Rome, Rome put several sanctions on him. And one of them was, you have to give us hostages. And several of his family members and so forth were held by Rome just to make sure that the north was obedient. And if they weren't obedient, you start killing hostages, that type of thing. So Demetrius, what happened is Philopater sent Antiochus IV or here I go, Philopater, Philopater, sent Antiochus IV, he was in captivity. But then as time went on, Philopater said, let's make a trade. I will give you my son Demetrius in exchange for Antiochus IV. So Antiochus was a captive. Now he gets his freedom, he comes out. And instead of being thankful for that and being a noble uh, member of the kingdom, he says, this is my opportunity. And instead of raising up an army to overthrow the government, he goes in shaking hands and kissing babies and saying, uh, thank you so much. I could do such a better job. And, and it's just politics the whole time. When it says he's a vile person, he was so vile, the history books tell us that people thought he was actually insane because he would go through towns literally throwing money at people, just throwing money saying, love me, this is what I can do for you. And that is how he obtained the kingdom, is simply by flattery. So what we read in the Bible, 350 years before it happened, I mean, that is exactly what happened. All right, this brings us to verse number 22. It says in the Bible, And with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown from, uh, from before him, and he shall be broken. Yea, also the prince of the covenant. All right, let's talk just for a moment about, again, the pronouns in here, it, it makes us slow down and, and make sure we understand who those proper, uh, pronouns are talking about. With the arms of a flood shall they be overflown. Go back to verse 21 and look for the word they. In his estate shall stand up a vile person, Antiochus IV, to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom. Right? So the, the southern kingdom did not recognize Antiochus IV as being the rightful heir to the throne. So the they is the, is the south, the kings and the general and the army of the south. In verse 22, with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown from before him. Antiochus IV, not being a great military man himself, he made allegiances with various other kings. So let's turn our attention to the board here and then we'll fill in some blanks. Antiochus IV, by the way, I, I'll just mention now, he, he was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Epiphanes is to say an appearance of God. To take that name, you're really saying something quite big about yourself, to say, I am the manifestation of God. But that's what he thought about himself. 
Antiochus IV was favored by Attalus and Eumenes, brothers from Pergamus. Now, this will be up in Asia. You read about Pergamus in, in Revelation chapter uh, 2. Brothers from Pergamus who overcame the enemies of Antiochus with their military might. So that's what you have in verse 22. The arms of a flood shall they be overflown from before him. Attalus and Eumenes, they overcome the king of the south. And then the last part of verse 22, it talks about, yea, also the prince of the covenant. So let's keep reading on the board. Onias III, and this sends us off to a different conversation altogether. I'm not going to get deep into. This is a deep study then in Jewish history. There were two kingdoms fighting. There was the Tobiads and the Oniads. One was conservative, one was progressive. I bring that up simply to say that in today's world, do you understand in politics, there are two groups fighting. One's always the progressive side. One's always the conservative side. There's no new thing under the sun. These things have constantly been going on. So Onias, he was of the conservative nature, right? And we read here, Onias III, a descendant of Aaron, was the high priest at that time. He was the prince of the covenant. That's what you see at the end of verse 22. He was standing for the holy covenant that is, God promised Abraham and Abraham's descendants that they would have control of the land of Canaan, or, or what we know as Israel, right? who was eventually overcome by the political shenanigans of Antiochus. Do, you, do we all know what shenanigans are? In Afrikaans, what's it for shenanigans? Who? Manavalas. I like that. Yeah, Manavalas. I'll put that word in my dictionary. I'll I'll slip that into a sermon soon, I'm sure. The shenanigans of Antiochus. All right, we'll talk more about that in the next verse. Verse 23. And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully, for he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. All right, so Antiochus IV, he is not strong enough in a military sense to overcome his enemies. So he employed the... The, the help of Attalus and Eumenes. And now he's also gone into a covenant. He's made a deal with this prince of the covenant, with the Jewish high priest. So Onias is ruling over the Jews in a religious sense, but at this time, the Jews didn't really have their own king. So the religious leader was also the political leader. So Onias had power in both ways. But it says here, after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully. So, Onias had a brother. His brother's name was Joshua, but Joshua is a Jewish name. So, Joshua changed his name to Jason. Jason is a Greek name, and it it was a very Hellenized name. The, The Greek people were known as being Hellenized. It had to do with Alexander's mother being Helen and all of this. So, Uh, Jason wanted to come off as being very progressive and, you know, keeping up with the times and everything's gone Greek and that type of stuff. So Jason went to Antiochus behind Onias' back and bribed, tell me if this sounds familiar, he paid Antiochus money to get the position of high priest. He bribed his way into the religious position of authority and said, listen, I can deliver you the people of Israel. I can swing them from the old conservative ways to the new liberal progressive ways. We will Hellenize the Jewish people and thereby you will assimilate them into your culture and thereby you'll conquer them without even fighting them. And Antiochus, being a man of absolutely no moral value, said, 
great. You pay me to do the work that I want you to do. I'll take the bribe. And he did. And Jason, he was a, a, a vile man himself. I'll spare all the details of what he did. But he set up horrible uh, practices within Israel at that time. Uh, do, do you guys, you're familiar with this word, gymnasium? Right? A gymnasium. This is where it really came to be a big thing. So, gymnasium, if you look at the root of that word, it comes from a Greek word that means naked or nude. And the gymnasium was open so that men could wrestle in the nude, but they did it in, in public view. So, you could stand at the temple at this time, and Jason had opened up a gymnasium. You could take a stone and throw it and hit the gymnasium from the temple. And, and people were watching this stuff, men, women, and children walking by, and guys, it wasn't just the men wrestling in the nude that was vile. The people in the stands weren't doing much better. It was a horribly wicked time. And, and by this, the people of Israel were slowly but surely becoming more and more like the Greeks and less and less like biblical Jews. All right, so it says in verse 23, After the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully, for he shall come up and shall become strong with a small people. Let's direct our attention to the board here. Antiochus IV received a bribe from Onias' brother Jason, which gave Jason the position of high priest. This league doesn't stand for long. As a third brother, Menelaus. So there was Onias and Jason, Menelaus, younger brother to, to, those, uh, to those two. He outbribed Jason for the office of high priest. You see what's going on? This is just politics. This could be yesterday's newspaper in South Africa. <laughs> where one guy pays a bigger bribe than the next guy. No new thing under the sun. The same Menelaus eventually has Onias secretly assassinated. And that's a whole other story, not mentioned in Scripture here. But Antiochus did not start out with a large army, but through political alliances, he became stronger and stronger as he came up into the Holy Land. So direct your attention back to verse 23. After the league made with him, Antiochus made a league with Jason. He shall work deceitfully. So then Antiochus took a bigger bribe from Menelaus and said, sure, yeah, you can go be high priest. So he works deceitfully. For he shall come up, Antiochus did come up, and shall become strong with a small people. He started off with a small army and eventually his army grew and grew as he made more and more alliances. All right, that brings us to verse 24. He shall enter peaceably even upon the fought, uh, fought, fattest places of the province. He did. Antiochus started to target the places with the most prosperity. He would go there and either politic his way to the top or attack and take over those various places. But it, it was dotted all over the map where he started to gain control. He shall enter peaceably even upon the fattest places of the province. And he shall do that which his fathers have not done, nor his father's fathers. He shall scatter among them the prey and spoil and riches. Yea, and he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds even for a time. Right, so the Bible tells us that Antiochus is going to do something that his fathers and his father's fathers hadn't done. What is that? Right, let's read the board and then we'll give you some more notes. Antiochus IV began to enter into various places in Asia. That's including Pergamus and places like that. Syria and Israel. Now, I, if, if that maybe, if you struggle to mentally picture that, it would be good to familiarize yourself with a map. Just, just take a look at some point, and you'll see you got Asia, then it swings down to Syria, and then you keep going south, it's Israel. All right, he, he takes over in various places in Asia, Syria, and Israel, 
not through war, but by distributing vast amounts of wealth as gifts to the people. So this was a continual political practice. When I lived in Malawi, we had uh, the president of the country when I moved there in 2002. His name was Bakidi Maluzi. And the way that he would campaign is he would drive through the villages and take 50 kwacha notes, which isn't worth a whole lot, but at the time it was, you know, a decent amount of money. You could buy a few mealies with that. He'd take these 50 kwacha notes, and as he drove through in a minibus, he'd throw the 50 kwacha notes out the window and say, vote for me, vote for me. That was his campaign tactic. That's, in a small way, what, what Antiochus was doing. He would spoil these other countries and then take the wealth, go down the road, and just spread that wealth around, literally buying friends. That's how he would enter into the fattest places of the province. All right, we continue to read. The Egyptians had claimed Israel as their possession. Now, this is a big deal. Because if you turn on the news today, they are still talking about this today. Where Egypt says, we have a right to be involved in the political ongoings of Palestine and Israel 2,000 years earlier, same conversations. The Egyptians had claimed Israel as their possession from different strategic points within Israeli boundaries. Antiochus devised battle plans to take down the king of the south. This is exactly what Antiochus did. 360 years later, we read in the history books that Antiochus, he went to a place called Joppa, which is in central Israel. Then he went to Jerusalem. And then finally, he went up to Phoenicia, which is just a little north of, of Israel. And he strengthened his own strongholds in all of these places. And every time he would go, he would devise a plan to take down the Egyptian forces and strongholds. So exactly what we see in verse 24, at the end of the verse, he shall forecast his devices against the strongholds even for a time. So it took him several months, but to forecast a device is what we would say to to work up a scheme, to cook up a plot, make a plan, a skellum plan. That's what he was doing. Guys, do you understand? 360 years before it happens. I mean, to read this, you would think that it just happened and Daniel wrote it down. He's writing this 360 years before it happened. Those are impressively fine-tuned details. And not anything a natural man could get right. All right, verse 25 and, and 26. Let's get these two verses together. The Bible says, And he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south, with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great army, a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand. All right, the two armies are going to fight, but the south is going to lose. It says at the end of the verse, for they shall, for, for they, another pronoun, we'll come to that, for they shall forecast devices against him, against the king of the south. Verse 26, yea, they that feed of the portion of his meat shall destroy him, and his army shall overflow, and many shall fall down slain. All right. This, this is just incredible how these details come to pass. Let's read the board, and then we'll talk for a moment. Antiochus IV, unwilling to yield to the demands of philometer. Again, I could say philometer, but philometer in Greek, that means loving a meter, which, philometer, uh, just sounds more educated, right? Unwilling to yield to the demands of philometer, so there's a new... Ptolemy at this time, right? The, 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 the last one has died off. Uh, engaged in battle and won several victories. 
including a couple of major cities in Egypt, with the exception of conquering Alexandria. Alexandria was the chief city in Egypt. Alexander the Great had conquered it, put his name on it. There was a massive library. One of the best universities in the world was Alexandria at this time. So to conquer Alexandria, you are gaining one of the chief cities in the then known world. So it was a big deal. All right. It says that the uh, second paragraph, Philometer's military generals advised an advance in war only to turn on the Ptolemy. Some of the advisors freely gave Egypt's provincial interest to Antiochus. So they're selling him out. Furthermore, the calculated bad advice caused Philometer to send much of his army into battle, leading to a high death toll among his troops. Take a look again at the end of verse 25. He shall not stand. Right? Two armies coming together. The king of the south doesn't stand. For they, the they are the advisors See if you can see my red dot over there. His advisors that are giving bad advice. For they shall forecast devices against him. So his generals cooked up this bad battle plan on purpose to make sure that the king of the south would lose. Verse 26, yea, they, the advisors, the generals of Ptolemy's army, they that feed of the portion of his meat shall destroy him. That's where they would make these decisions. They'd sit down at the dinner table and talk about the battle plans. That's where they told him to do this. And his army shall overflow. So they convinced Ptolemy to send out a big army. And he did. And many shall fall down slain. Tens of thousands of Egyptians died as a result of this bad advice. 365 years before it was done. Impressive. All right, verse 27. It says, And both, of the, and both these kings' hearts shall be to do mischief. And they shall speak lies at one table, but it shall not prosper. For yet the end shall be at the time appointed. All right. Just like you would, you would see in typical politics, they sit down at the table. Peace treaty time. You know, let's, let's put on the handshakes and have a tea and a biscuit. And let's make it look good, you know, and CNN and BBC and Al Jazeera. And, oh, look at this great, uh, this, this peace consultation. Oh, man, politics just hasn't changed. Let's read the board and we'll get some details about these two guys sitting at the table. Antiochus IV and Ptolemy Philometer met in Memphis. That's not Memphis, Tennessee. That's Memphis in Egypt. Met in Memphis to discuss a peaceful way forward. Now, you understand, Philometer's getting his rear end kicked. And he realizes, I'm not going to win, so I need to make peace with my enemy. So he calls Antiochus in. They sit down. How can we work this out? Philometer's brother, Eurygetus, had taken control of Alexandria by this point. So you can imagine, it looks as if Philometer is going to fade into the sunset, and Eurygetus, having control of Alexandria, he is going to overtake all of Egypt. So, Antiochus vowed to protect Philometer from an internal takeover from his brother, when in fact, he wanted to gain access to all of Egypt through this effort. Philometer, seemingly pleased to accept Antiochus' help, was actually planning to form a coalition with his brother and fight back against Antiochus. All right, so let's make sure you're on the same page here. Philometer, Antiochus, sit down. And Antiochus says to Philometer, yo, you've had a bad run, dude. Every time you go out to war, I keep kicking your rear end. So how about we be friends instead of enemies for a while? I can see that your brother has taken over 
Alexandria, and from here, he's going to take over the kingdom. So, let me take you under my wing. I'll protect you. I dub thee king of Memphis. And he gave him that crown. And he said, and if Eurogetus tries to take over, I'll be there. I got your back. And Philometer said, thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you, thank you, boss. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But what Antiochus didn't know is Philometer had a backdoor deal going with Eurogetus the whole time. So while he's sitting at the table, they're acting mischievously because they know they're lying to each other. Antiochus wants to protect Philometer simply so that he can gain backdoor interest into all of Egypt. But Philometer is eventually going to join up with Eurogetus, join forces, and then attack and try to take over the north. So th that's verse 27. These kings' hearts shall be to do mischief, and they shall speak lies at one table. Neither of them meant what they were saying. How did Daniel know this 365 years? How did he know that two kings would sit at a table lying to each other and know the specific lies? I mean, the, the, the fact that politicians will lie is not a surprise, but to know under the circumstances, that's a big deal. All right, but it shall not prosper, and it didn't. None of their plans worked out the way that they thought. Verse 28, it says, Then shall he return into his, uh, into his land with great riches. And he did. Antiochus went back to Syria with great riches. And his heart shall be against the holy covenant, and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. All right, so let's uh, read verse 28 on the board or the comments about it. So Antiochus is quite happy at this point. Even though he didn't get control of Alexandria and all of Egypt like he thought, he's still walking away in pretty good shape. On his way back to Syria, you understand going from Egypt, you have to walk up through Israel to get into Syria. On his way back to Syria, Antiochus IV stopped in Jerusalem. He kind of owned the place to a certain extent, so he stops there. With the help of Menelaus, remember he's the one that outbribed his brother and had taken over, and yeah, he plundered the temple, killed 80,000 people, and took 40,000 people as slaves. Just to, show, just to flex his muscle. Just to flex his muscle. And he had the help of the high priest to do this. That's Menelaus. All right, so that's verse number 28. It, he shall be against, his heart shall be against the holy covenant. The holy covenant is the Jews have the land. They are the rightful heirs of this land. And Antiochus is saying, I'll prove to you I'm in control of this land. Because there were certain Jews in Israel that didn't like Antiochus. They wanted him dead. So he was just flexing his muscle to make sure they knew who was boss. All right, after he did this, he returned to his own land. In verse 29 at the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south, but it shall not be as the former or as the latter. All right, so verse 29 on the board. Antiochus IV, upon seeing that Philometer had broken league with him and rather made alliance with Eurogetus, now he figured out the whole plot, interpreted this as an act of war. Philometer, now king in Alexandria, was to be attacked by Antiochus. Antiochus could not politic his way to victory, nor did his armies overcome as they had before. So now it's come out. Philometer was lying. He was in, in cahoots with his brother Eurogetus the whole time. And Antiochus wants to go down south again and make this right and show that he is uh, stronger. But it didn't work out. Just like verse 29 said, it shall not be as the former nor as the latter. Antiochus does not come out on top. 
He can't politic or fight his way into victory. All right, so this brings us to verse number 30. For the ships of Cheatham shall come against him, and therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. All right, so let's, uh, let me break down a couple of things. Forgive me, I'm going to backtrack just slightly here. When Antiochus in verse 28, when he was going back to his land and then his heart turned against the holy covenant, it, it will help you to know this. As he was going back, a rumor began to circulate that Antiochus had died. And that rumor was believed by so many Jews, they started to throw parties and have festivals and praise the Lord, Antiochus is dead. When Antiochus heard about that, it infuriated him and that was what led him to flex his muscle and say, how dare you Jews rejoice over my death? And that's why he ended up plundering and killing and taking slaves and so forth like that. Okay, so have that in mind. Antiochus is upset with the Jews for these reasons. Now, Antiochus is coming down south, verse 29, to fight against Egypt. His plan was to take Alexandria. That's the one thing Antiochus Epiphanes had not been able to do yet. He'd won everywhere else, but not in Alexandria. So he is marching down to Alexandria, verse 30, and as he's marching down there, he gets six kilometers outside the city limits of Alexandria. But then this odd thing is mentioned, the ships of Cheatham shall come against him. Cheatham was a main city on the island of Cyprus. It just so happens that was one of the main ports where Roman ships would stop as they would sail through the Mediterranean Sea from Italy. They'd stop in Cyprus at Cheatham and then go down into uh, Jerusalem or into uh, Alexandria or some other port. Well, remember that the Egyptians, they had a deal with the Romans. You might remember that from last time. They had made a deal saying, listen, help us out. Be in alliance with us. So when Philometor realized that Antiochus is coming to, to kill us, they called up the Romans. You know, they sent an email and said, please hurry, come send some help. So here come the ships of Cheatham, exactly as the Bible predicted. The Romans showed up with a small amount of soldiers and the Roman general, a guy named Popilius Lanus, he came down with official tablets in his hand and scrolls in his hand. So when Antiochus saw this Roman general, he walks up to him and extends the hand as if to say hello and welcome. Lanius, instead, instead of shaking his hand or embracing him, he takes the roll out and puts it in his hand. And it's a, an official declaration to say, back off or we will destroy you. So he explains to him. He said, sir, I'm giving you one chance today. And he took a cane, a, a staff, if you will, and he walked around Antiochus and his men and he drew a circle in the sand, because they were near the beach there, drew a circle in the sand around him and said, sir... If you take one step outside of this circle without making an official declaration of peace with the Egyptians, then we will consider your next step an act of war against the Roman Empire. So he said, you're not just fighting Alexandria now, you're fighting all of Rome if you take one step over the line. This is where we get the phrase, drawing a line in the sand. This is where it comes from. I'm drawing the line, this, you take one step and things are going to change. So Antiochus realized at this point, uh, okay, I, I am not going to fight the entire Roman Empire. 
all I wanted was Alexandria. So now he is incredibly embarrassed. Get verse 30. Forgive me. Did, yeah, let's, let's, read, let's read the board, then we'll, I'll show you something else in verse 30. Antiochus IV marched toward Alexandria when arriving about six kilometer outside of town. He was met by Roman troops received, uh, recently arrived via ships from Cheatham, led by General Lanius. Antiochus, unable to stand against Rome, retreated shamefully. Out of frustration, he, while returning to Syria, decided to stop in Jerusalem and brutally and grossly entreat the Jewish people. So this is verse 30. He shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. So shall he do, it says. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. So as Antiochus is marching back up to his home in Syria, he's very embarrassed. He just got put to shame by the, by the Romans. So what he does is he has, in, in uh, psychological terms, they call this anger displacement. Instead of taking his frustrations out on the Egyptians or on the Romans, he can't. They're too big for him. What he instead does is says, I'm going to take it out on these Jews. So he's marching through Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and he begins to do, up until this time, the absolute worst things that have ever been done in that temple. Um, on December the 25th, 168 BC, using, with the help of some apostate Jews, you see in verse 30, He'll even have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. So there are some Jews that are helping Antiochus do this. He goes into the temple and offers a pig on the altar. Now for a Jew, that, that's just a slap in the face. That's an un, one of the most unclean animals in their eyes because, well, it's just a filthy animal. And he's put that on the altar. Furthermore, he brought an idol of Zeus into the temple. And put that idol in the temple and said, you're no longer allowed to worship Jehovah, now you must worship Zeus. And commanded the Jews to worship the Greek god uh, and the Roman version thereof as well. They, Jupiter was the Roman version of that god. He said that you're no longer allowed to be Jewish. If you circumcise your men children, uh, you will be killed. If you observe the Sabbath, you will be killed. If you practice any sacred ritual, you will be killed. He outlawed Jewish life completely. And this was all just out of anger at how embarrassed he was. Verse number 31, it says, And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. So reading on the board here, Antiochus IV encompassed Jerusalem with armed, uh, with armed forces, not only his own, but also that of his allies. So verse 31 says, arms shall stand on his part. That's exactly what happened. He outlawed the daily sacrifice. The Jews were supposed to bring a sacrifice every morning and every evening, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. every day. He outlawed that, turning the sanctuary into a place of many lewd and offensive practices, including sacrificing a pig on the altar and setting up an idol to Jupiter or Zeus. There were, uh, there were so many heathen in and surrounding the temples, the Jews had no chance to enter, thus it was made desolate. So it was emptied of Jews. So it was the abomination that maketh desolate. And that was the term used by the Jews of that time that Antiochus has committed the abomination of desolation. That's how they interpreted this. Uh, I hope you're paying attention to that because you just got a lot of information for your New Testament and for prophecy. 
Because Antiochus Epiphanes is maybe the greatest picture of the Antichrist that you have in the Old Testament. Because what he's doing will be duplicated one day by the Antichrist. In verse 32, we read, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries, but the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. So reading the board, Although Antiochus IV enticed a number of Jews with his good words and fair speeches, there were a group of pious Jews known as the Hasidians who stood against the corruption of their culture. From this group arises the Maccabeans who would lead an impressive revolt and retake Jerusalem. So let me give you just a couple of ideas on this. Uh, a lot of this material, I normally wouldn't recommend reading the Apocrypha, but if you want to read the Apocrypha just as a history book, First Maccabees actually gives you a lot of this information. So I don't think the Apocrypha is in any way on the level with Scripture, but it does give you some of the historical background to all of this story. That's what First Maccabees is about. Right, also, um, there were a lot of Jews that were corrupted by the slick tongue of Antiochus because he was trying to convince them that their old-fashioned conservative ways of being Jews was outdated. The new world was becoming Greek. So take on this Hellenized culture. Take on these, this new behavior. Leave behind your old life. But then these Hasidian, the, uh, the Hasidian, the word Hasidian means pious ones. Uh, they stood against it. So at verse 32, the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. They're going to do heroic things. And they did, as we're going to see in the next verse. Verse 33, and they that under, understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall, be, uh, they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity, and by spoil many days. And this is precisely what happened. Some of these pious, faithful Jews, they began to do what we know as evangelism. They didn't have the gospel as we have it, but they went out spreading the gospel of um, the Torah (laughs) and telling people, come back to the law. Do, Do it according to the Bible we have. So on the board we read, faithful Jews tried to reprove and instruct the people. Antiochus spared no cruelty in persecuting such people. Many were thrust through with the sword. Some were burned alive while hiding in caves where they were trying to honor the Sabbath. Some were trapped in caves and other places as a means of torture. Confiscating the possessions of noncompliance was common in this time. So just to make life difficult, they would take their stuff simply because they were Jewish. And then you spring ahead 2,000 years and you have Hitler doing the same thing during the Holocaust. Same exact thing. History repeats itself. So verse 33, do you see it there? Fall by the sword, flame, captivity, and by spoil. Exactly. This is 380 years before it happened. Daniel had it spot on. Verse 34, we read, Now when they fall, they shall be holpen with a little help. All right, the word holpen is an old English way of saying helped. They shall be helped with a little help. Now when they shall fall, that is the Jewish people, they shall be holpen with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. All right, this is the flattery part. Uh, There were plenty of people at this time. Some of the, well, how can I explain this succinctly? Succinctly. There There started to rise up a small group of Jews that were tired of all this progressive liberalism and Antiochus trying to force their... Uh, the, the, the northern ways on the people. So this little group 
rose up and started to take seriously. I'm even fighting against their own Jewish brethren that had gone progressive. So that sometimes when, a, when, when these faithful, old-fashioned conservative Jews, when they would say, hey, are you one of these Hellenized Jews? They would say, oh, no, 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 no. We, we love the old ways. We love the Torah. We love the Lord. But they were, that was just flattery. They were just sparing their life. So this was very common in that time. But it says, they, uh, verse 34, that when they shall fall, they shall be hoping with a little help. So here's what happened. There was an old man in his 80s named Mattathias. Mattathias got sick and tired of walking out in public every day and seeing his people, the Jews, uh, acting like Gentiles, going down the gymnasium and just doing vile, wicked things in the streets. It was just horrible life. So Mattathias got sick of it. He took out his sword in, in his 80s, whack, 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 and he starts taking down a few of Antiochus's men. He killed a few Syrians, and he even killed one of his own. He killed a fellow Jew who had Hellenized, who had gone over to that way of life. Mattathias, as a result of this little exploit, people started to realize, hey, we can fight back. So, a little help. It wasn't a big group, but people said, all right, enough of this. It took one man to make a real stand. Somebody had to start the, the upright. Somebody had to say, enough is enough. We're not going to live like this any longer. So as a result, the, the Israelites, the faithful ones, started to organize small little revolts. Here and there, they would hide in the trees and bushes, almost like guerrilla warfare, looking for opportunities to take down Antiochus' soldiers. Well, eventually, Mattathias, right, he's too old to keep this up. He's in his 80s. So he has a son named Judas. Judas, or Judah, Judas, he says, all right, Dad, let me take it from here. And Judas began to put together military plans, and it was still very guerrilla-like in that they had to attack from strategic points. They didn't have a large army. They only had a little help, but they were zealous. And Judas started to conquer the enemy decisively, so much so that even the Syrians began to be afraid of, of what they were now, they were now being called the Maccabeans. This is one of the greatest Bainoms in all of history. The greatest nickname, I think, maybe ever. Judas Maccabeus. The word Maccabeus means the hammer. I mean, think of that, right? Ju Judas the hammer. Sounds like a boxer, right? <laughs> In the red corner, Judas the hammer, Maccabeus. It just, it's got some, it got some oomph to it. All right, so verse number 35, and some of them, our final verse for the lesson this morning, and some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. Now notice carefully, when it says, even to the time of the end, the, this is where the context jumps, whoop, out of the B.C.s and into the future. So we've been reading now, this is 165 B.C. This is where we're going to end up. From 165, it jumps to, who knows, 2023? 2024, it jumps all the way into the future. And the Bible tells us when to make that jump because it says, even to the time of the end. So we, we know to move it forward at that point. Now let's talk about verse 35 just momentarily. On the board, as it is, uh, I'm sorry, as is often the case with persecution, as the faithful were made into martyrs, it forced the people to choose a side. The faithful became increasingly more dedicated to their cause as each drop of the blood of their brethren was shed. So some of them of understanding shall fall. 
it's true, some of these Maccabeans and the people that were behind that revolt, they did die for the cause, <clears throat> but it raised up such a, a fervor and a zeal for the Jews to take back what was rightfully theirs, specifically the temple. So three years to the day, December 25th, 168, Antiochus desecrated the temple, put a pig on the altar. December 25th, 165, three years later, the Maccabeans retook the temple. And this is where, uh, leading up to that, as the legend has it, they didn't have enough oil to burn their special candle. They have a candlestick, the menorah. They didn't have enough oil for it to burn all the days leading up to this, uh, up to the battle. But they said, let's just pray and use what little oil we have. And this little bit of oil lasted the eight days leading up to, I believe, this battle. And this is where we get Hanukkah from. That's what you celebrate with the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. That's why they light a candle for the eight, I believe it's eight days leading up to that. And even in the New Testament, Jesus celebrated this in the book of, in the book of uh, John. You read about the festival of lights. Hanukkah, is an, that's the Jewish word or Hebrew word for festival of lights. So all of that ties into this piece of history uh, that we've gotten from this passage. So guys, might I just end up saying a little bit about verse 35 it says, some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white. It is to make them pure, to cleanse them, to free them from any blot, any spot on their record. Persecution has a way of doing this. Whenever you have to stand for your faith and fight for it, it, it forces you to get rooted and grounded deeply into what you believe. And this is where you'll see in the New Testament over and over again, Jesus will say that you, you need to confess me before men. And men will hate you for my sake. Rejoice, leap in that day when they speak evil of you for my name's sake. Over and over again, you'll see this theme of standing for Jesus and suffering for it. Don't run from that. I'm not saying you need to go out and purposely be a jerk to people in Jesus' name just so that they hate you. You go love them and treat them right and tell them the truth in Jesus' name and you're naturally going to get some bad feedback from that and that will strengthen your Christian stand maybe more than anything else you could do. You, it will force you to choose a side. And in these days in which we live, it's incredibly important to choose your side. Make it clear where you stand. These people had to do it. And if the Lord tarries, we are also going to be faced with such a stand where we're, we're going to have to make that choice. Fight back against the world system, not with swords, mind you, the weapons of our warfare, are not carnal, but we're going to have to stand with the sword of the Spirit and make it clear whose side we're on. All right, let's all stand. That being said, Father, I pray that you bless what we've learned this morning. Lord, I know we're covering a lot of history. But Father, what an impressive history it is to cover because Lord, you told us what would happen. And now we're seeing that exactly as you predicted it came to pass. Father, it gives us great hope that when Jesus said that he will return in, in like manner as he went, we, we look forward to that prophecy coming to pass. Bless our service to come.